Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get hungry. Folks, order Indian food tonight. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we haven't had dinner yet. Yeah, me neither. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season, we will be discussing business bosses and leaders. And on today's episode, we will talk about Rivati Kamat, an Indian architect and firm owner who was a pioneer of mud architecture. I'm Lizzie Rar, going to the dentist on Thursday in San Francisco. And I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica and Nurjiri. I'm Nurjiri Rivas. Just got my teeth cleaned and feel like I have a brand new mouth in Houston, Texas. <laughs> it feels so good. <laughs> but you can't have coffee or wine. Well, I got okay. For 30 minutes, but Oh really? I got my teeth clean yesterday. <laughs> yeah. It's only for 30 minutes that you're not supposed to eat or drink. I'm Jessica Rogers and I need to find a dentist for a teeth cleaning to tell me these things. And just a general checkup. <laughs> um but I'm based out of Miami, Florida. All right, let's do our disclaimer now. The three of us, you can call us leaders of discussions, but not experts on this subject. We rely heavily on experts sharing their research that we can then weave into stories that we share with you. So first off, thank you very much, experts, for sharing your knowledge. And second, listeners, if we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Send us an email. We would love to learn more, correct any mistake, and continue learning. All right, ladies, let's talk mud. Yes. Yes. It sounds like a new, better form of trash talking. So <laughs> I'm strangely excited about it and I don't know where it's going to go. We're not talking about mud slinging, but let's talk about dirt and let's get this tea <laughs> on Dravati. Oh, you saw what I saw? What I did there? <laughs> All right. Well, first, let's go back to the beginning. Rivati was born in 1955 in Bhubaneswar, India, into a Tamil Brahmin family. 
Oh, Tamil Brahmin are an ethno-religious group of people that speak Tamil and their caste in society is Brahmin. This is a really long, complicated subject. So to stay on the surface, I'll say that there's a type of social pyramid in India and Brahmin was at the top. So I'm guessing our girl Rivati was doing all right. Yeah, it's really interesting to look into it. And just to add a little bit more, for context, there are four main classes, like Narjiri mentioned, the Brahmins or priestly people are at the top. And then each class can be further divided into 3000 castes and to about 25,000 subcasts that can be based on occupations and such. It's actually really fascinating. Yes. Well, info I found said that she grew up in Bangalore and in rural villages along the Mahanadi River. Those places are not close to each other. So not sure if they moved back and forth or if the Bangalore part wasn't super correct. But anyway, the Mahanadi River goes through Ubaneshwar, and that's where her dad worked on a project along the Mahanadi River. So it seems like she definitely spent early years in that area. So we're going to focus more on that part of India. Okay. I wonder what they eat there. Why? (laughs) (laughs) So I can better situate myself. Like imagine myself in that area eating. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sure. I mean, yeah, I totally. Sure, sure. I would imagine that she ate seafood since it's by a river. But I also assume that they grew what they ate. Also, you know, my only point of reference is Top Chef Padma Lakshmi because she is from Chennai, you know, but it's actually more part of the southeast part of India. And anyway, I read her memoir and she mentioned eating a lot of lentils, a type of porridge made of lentils and dates. So I'm just obsessed <laughs> with a restaurant here that has Goan cuisine. And I was like, I like all their plates. My friend orders for us so I can try all the things. So my first thought about this town was food. That's true. Totally. <laughs> I just have to Indian food on my mind. Bhubaneswar is the capital of the state of Odisha. And actually, ladies, it's one of the first modern planned cities in India, just like one of our faves, Shandagar. Oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. It was designed by a German architect named Otto Konigsberger in 1946. So only about a decade before Rivati was born. So she grew up in a brand new city and that would go on to expand very quickly. Okay, that's super cool. And I am like 75% sure that we talked about Otto. I think he used to work or or Dora. Dora God used to work with him, I think. Mm, That makes sense. I'm going to have to re-listen. I wonder what would have been some of her takeaways from living in this type of like planned environment. Sounds cool. Yeah, I didn't find a lot specifically about that, but I just feel like that would be an interesting like place to grow up when especially when it was so new, you know, Yeah, (laughs) talk about brand new construction. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, remember, I mentioned a project that her dad was working on along the Mahanadi River, right? Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Rivati's dad was a civil engineer and he worked on the Hirakud Dam along the Mahanadi River in the state of Odisha. Mikavum Nalatu. Okay, I was wondering what he actually did there, and that sounds so cool. Yeah. The dam is actually really interesting. It's the longest earthen dam in the world. Mm. It's 25.8 kilometers long, or 16 miles, and the structure is a composite of earth, concrete, and masonry. 
The dam was planned because the upper half of the river basin was experiencing droughts and the lower portion was experiencing flooding. So the dam was built in order to better control both issues and also provides hydroelectric power through two powerhouses. And it also irrigates 75,000 square kilometers of land. All right. That's like killing three birds, three big birds with one stone. Mm. I like the ingenuity and problem solving going on here. Yeah. Exactly. So while the dam has done a lot of great things for the area, we should also note that by damming the river and creating the Hirakud Reservoir behind the dam, there were almost 22,000 families displaced and thousands more were affected. Oh, Uh, yeah. You know, we've talked about this a few times throughout our show. I mean, we can see what good design can do, but to whose expense? I was really excited to hear you talk about this hydropower and all this like problem solving that one dam could do. But the displacement of 22,000 families, that sounds horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard subject to discuss. I think eminent domain is one of the moral dilemmas our profession faces. Mm. And it it just it's really difficult. But I hope I never go through that in my career that I would be so conflicted if I was involved in a case of eminent domain. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, like you can't please everybody. Right. Someone will no, always exactly. get the short Somebody end. always loses. Yeah. They always get mm-hmm. the short end of the stick. Um, but I agree. There has to be a way that these types of decisions can have solutions for all parties to be involved and come to an agreement. Yeah. Rivati grew up watching her father work on this earthen dam, and I would guess it had an effect on her future career direction. Growing up, she would also read through architectural journals that her grandfather had. He was also a civil engineer. And she would also read about Frank Lloyd Wright, Bruno Taut, Bruce Goff, Oscar Nehemiah, Frederick Kiesler, and Eric Mendelssohn. I bet she also enjoyed learning about Lena Bobardi, Lily Reich, Marianne Miani Griffin, Ray Eames, and Aino Alto, too. <laughs> yes, tell him. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Well, apparently she was not a fan of Mises' minimalist approach, though. <laughs> okay, then maybe she didn't like Lily then. <laughs> yeah, maybe, <laughs> not. <laughs> maybe not. Uh, maybe she read and was like, no, thank you. But you mentioned folks like Frank and Oscar. I mean, I would think that she wasn't a fan of the minimalists. Yeah, sure. Well, Rivati knew that she wanted to be an architect from a pretty early age. So she went to the School of Planning and Architecture, or the SPA, in Delhi. She received a bachelor's degree in architecture in 1977, and later she got a master's in urban and regional planning in 1981 from SPA, Delhi. Ooh, I got really excited when I read, like, spa. It read spa. And you know, I love me a spa, (laughs) honey. I got so excited. I was like, ooh, we got to talk about spas. You know, you know, India, they have, like, this whole, like, wellness thing. Anyway, but S.P.A., It's actually also interesting, not the spa level, but it's a school that looks like it started fairly early. It opened in 1941, Mm -hmm. but by the time Rivati would enroll, it would have been established as a prominent like town and urban planning institution. So that's really cool. Yeah. After she graduated in 1977, she got a job at Stein, Doshi and Bala in Delhi, which she stayed at for one year. After that, she worked at Rasik International architects and furniture designers in New Delhi. In 1979, 
she started to work for the GRUP, or the Group for Rural and Urban Planning. GRUP was a partnership between Vasant Kamat, Romi Khosla, and Narendra Dengel. So this is where she met her husband, Vasant Kamat. Cute. Ooh, I like all those names. And I like that she got a lot of different experiences in a really short time. Yeah. Okay. So I must say, I did a quick look into some of these names and they are all great in their own right. So Rivati was in good company. But I want to make a quick note because as I tried to look at the information on Vasant, her husband, I mostly found information on Rivati. So it's usually the other way around. I just, ha 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 ha. It's just really nice that I find information on her when I try to look up information on people (laughs) associated with her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she is the more well-known of the two, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And actually, to be honest, I could not find a wedding date. But in 1981, she and Vasant opened their own firm called Rivati and Vasant Kamat Architects in Delhi. Lovely. Vanakam, business owner, Rivati. That's so cute. And also, it's okay that you didn't find a wedding date. You found another partnership, their business. (laughs) So that's where (laughs) we know that it started. Yes, yes. Rivati was committed to making vernacular and mud architecture more prevalent and to take away the stigma that mud architecture was only used for poor and impoverished society. She was shocked by the mindless consumption that she saw becoming part of Indian architecture in the late 90s. All right, let's pause right here and just say a quick thing about vernacular architecture. Vernacular architecture is a type of regional or local construction that uses traditional materials and resources from the area where the building is built. As a result, the architecture is related to its context and culture. For example... The vernacular architecture of Costa Rica will look different than the vernacular architecture of Finland and of India. Get it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What I like about it is that the architecture creates a sense of identity that you don't get with modern architecture, which is meant to be an international style, which really means European style. But I digress. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. And then also when we talk about vernacular architecture we can also pull up a couple of uh she Bells podcast episodes where we mention vernacular architecture um in some cases it might even be called the regional modernism so what comes to mind to me on the top of my head is episode 17 minette de silva that talks about regional modernism and then we also have ladies like mary elizabeth jane coulter our episode 33 lady that did parkitecture Yeah, all those were vernacular in their own way. I guess Mm -hmm. I could argue that regional modernism is a type of vernacular architecture. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but I would need to study a little more on the subject before I entered into any debate. Mm -hmm. Just saying. (laughs) But yes, the idea of being contextual and using local materials is what both Minette and Mary Elizabeth Jane were about. So I agree with that. Yes. So mud architecture is pretty much what it sounds like. The structure of the building is made out of mud and there's a few different techniques that can be used. But the most common that people would probably be familiar with is adobe, Mm -hmm. which we still commonly use here in the U.S. in the Southwest. My parents actually have an adobe house in New Mexico. 
The mud is formed into blocks or bricks, and then they're dried or cured before they use them to build the walls. And then they'll plaster over the wall to give it a smooth finish. Mm. Rammed earth is a more contemporary type of mud architecture that people also might have heard of. Yes. Okay. So it's actually kind of satisfying to see how they make this. So if you want to go into like a YouTube rabbit hole, it's just so satisfying to watch. And depending on which part of the world they're making it, it affects the type of soil or mud. It affects their textures and colors. Um, Some cultures, they'll add straws or pebbles when making these mud bricks. And then they use the same mud as like the mortar. And, you know, all of this made by hand, by the way. You know, I just uh, I love dirt. (laughs) I mean, we know you like dirt. Like gossip, but you also <laughs> like dirt, like earth. Yeah, I thought you don't like to go outside. But I like to look at it from my phone watching oh. them make these things. But also, I mean, we all know my plant fascination. And did you know true, true. that there's different kinds of dirt that you can use to benefit different kinds of plants? So that's my. Yeah. I mean, um, it makes sense. I mean, that's my waterfall that I'm chasing as I'm constantly like trying to figure out different soil types for my different plants. But yeah, I'm telling you, the world of dirt is very interesting. Well, this is all like really fascinating. I just didn't make the connection that Adobe architecture was mud architecture until like right the second. I thought it was going to be like those houses we see in the Middle East where it gets too hot. So they sort of build underground. I thought that that's what mud architecture would be about. Mm. Mm. More like cliff dwellings (laughs) kind of thing. Kind of. Kind of. There's this image in my head that I just can't find on anywhere but yeah. one day I will but I cliff architecture also very fascinating you see that a lot in the southwest of the U.S. as well like mm-hmm. Mesa Verde National Park in southwest Colorado that's the first thing that comes to my mind we're just learning so much today Jessica likes mm-hmm. dirt adobe <laughs> is more architecture all the things being learned today I love it well guys we actually studied a mud architecture building in history in school I'm not sure if it was Islamic architecture or the main architectural history course. I think it was Islamic architecture. But anyway, when you Google mud architecture, this building is the first thing that comes up. And I recognized it immediately. It is in Mali. It's the Great Mosque of Dijene. And it's actually a really cool looking building. It has decorative bundles of sticks and wood across the facade that are there for aesthetic reasons. But they also kind of become scaffolding when they do annual repairs on the building. You have to put this on the show notes, even though it's not her, but just like to give us context. No, as an example of mud architecture, for sure. So that the listeners can see. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds familiar. So I do remember in our history classes, the few times that I wasn't asleep about mud architecture, but it was in the context of like early dwellings and civilization. We might also have learned about this type of architecture in building systems or in theory classes. So when I was awake during that part, it was interesting because it was taught to us in the context of ingenuity and materials and how mud could be a sustainable way to insulate buildings or dwellings, I should say. Yes. That's true. And it's also incredible to think that things made out of mud are still standing. Like Mm -hmm. the marvel of construction is absolutely amazing. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like Jessica was saying, mud is a great building material because it's naturally occurring, right? Like 
every place has soil and therefore it doesn't require the energy to manufacture the material itself the same way that concrete or steel do. Um, It also does very well in various climatic conditions, especially those with high heat, as it can be used to passively heat a structure. Okay, so why don't we build with mud more? That's yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm with Rivathi on this. Where are my mud architects at? I wonder if we could get more lead points if we use mud. I would assume so. (laughs) Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Well, Riva T thought we should be using this material for these reasons. She said, my whole effort is to make mud a viable material. The embodied energy of mud is the lowest. Mud is the most recyclable and sustainable material on this planet. It only uses small amounts of mechanical energy and huge amounts of human energy. It sustains human beings. Here, here. I feel like stone or wood reps might at Rebathy (laughs) if she was on Twitter. (laughs) And they might start a debate on whose material is really the most sustainable. Not wood. (laughs) Get into, I think so, like embodied energy and stuff. I think so. She would use mud as the building material for luxury resorts and homes in India, such as the Desert Resort Mandawa in Rajasthan. Guys, the hotel looks real cool. Like, we might have to try and go someday. We have to. It was designed to replicate local tribal clusters. It looks rustic in some ways, but it also has these decorative elements like paint, mirror, and beads, which make it feel luxurious. Yo, this place looks so cool. Okay, legit. We need an adventures list. Like, yeah. Rivati was also very conscious of how people in communities would use her spaces over time. I found a short documentary about Rivati, which I'll include in the show notes. And she talks about architecture saying the very act of architecture is destructive. And most architecture or what is considered architecture is to establish power. It is actually to impose yourself on the environment or to symbolize control over nature. And somehow I don't find my repose in that. I think she was very interested in talking with people to really understand how they would use spaces and use that to inform her design rather than like her putting her influence onto the architecture and kind of telling people how to use the space. Yeah, that quote at first like took me aback. I was like, whoa. I know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I never thought about architecture like that, but I can see her point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's like an extreme thing, but it's also like it kind of makes sense, right? Like it it does. It makes sense. And I think it's poetic. I like mm. that she acknowledges how destructive architecture can be because most architects don't talk about it in that way. It also makes mm. me wonder if it's because of what she witnessed when she lived in that town near the Mahanadi River. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if that had an influence, like seeing all that displacement and whatnot. Maybe. Mm-hmm. She was very holistic about her design. And she also talked about a project where they were studying a slum settlement. I think it was in Delhi. And you would think that that type of settlement would have kind of no structure or order, but there are familial, social, and work relationships that organize the settlement. And so she got to know every single person in the village and she took that into the design of a new housing for them. And I believe this was the Anangram project in 1983. She said... It brings with it a certain complexity and compassion because you are thinking of space not as an ego building exercise, but as space as responding to people 
and receiving people and actually sheltering people. That's what architecture should be about, really. Yeah. I think interviewing every single person in a village is a little too much. But maybe it's not. (laughs) Maybe it's not. I mean, if she's working on housing for all of them, they all deserve to have a say. But yeah, I wonder, how do you distill all that into one design? I know. That sounds really daunting. That sounds like Mm -hmm. a long ass project. And I don't think in today's world, (laughs) we don't have time to do that. (laughs) Who has the money for that? (laughs) At least not in the multifamilies that I'm working on. So (laughs) actually, it's just a totally different typology. But okay, I'll stop this tangent. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen this kind of deep dive in the realm of like multi-housing developments. Um, I've seen it in something similar in like smaller developments, but they're almost like case studies, you know, a few and far in between. Well, some of Rivati's most well-known projects are the Mud House for Nandita and Amit Judge in Delhi, the Lakshman Sagar Resort in Rajasthan, the Museum for Tribal Heritage in Bhopal, Raipur Jivashram Animal Shelter in Delhi, the Jiva Wellness Center in Haryana, the Gnostic Center in Delhi, and Tal Chapar Sanctuary for the government of Rajasthan. I'll include photos of most of these projects in the show notes. I really like her style. I'm really excited that you're going to put most of these projects on the show notes because I was quickly looking through a few of them and they are so pretty, but also now learning the thought process behind them and her beliefs in architecture to see the physical manifestation of that makes these projects just gorgeous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she worked on so many projects and different project types and you know that it takes a while just... By her process alone and who she interviews and all that she interviews. But yeah, yeah. I, I want to visit all of these places. Yeah. In addition to her own firm, Rivati also worked for the National Institute of Urban Affairs in 1981. The NIUA is a research institute for urban development in New Delhi. I couldn't find what she specifically did for them, but it sounds like a really interesting organization. They also do training courses and workshops on different subjects. Rivati was leading on different fronts. Yeah, and maybe even influencing actual institutional change. I bet. Yeah. I'm also not sure. I wonder if that project that we were talking about was part during that time, because I think mm. the dates kind of align. So mm-hmm. interesting. That could also have been part of it. Yeah. Rivati also taught at her alma mater, SPA, as visiting faculty from 1984 to 1987 and as an assistant professor from 1987 to 1991. Okay, we are entering overachiever realm. (laughs) Mm. Uh, Yeah, I also read that her husband was a professor there too. That's cute. Yeah. Mm Well, in 2005, their firm was renamed Kamat Design Studio when Rivati and Vasant's son, Ayod, joined their firm. Okay, all in the family now. Like, the whole family. <laughs> I know, it's a exactly. Family affair. It's a family affair. <laughs> so cute. Also, uh, this means that amongst all of her work that she's doing and interviewing people, she had a kid this whole time. Grown yep. kid to now join the firm. Yeah. And I'm not sure if she had other children. Like I didn't find it didn't read much about that, except for the fact that because her son, you know, joined their firm. So Mm -hmm. 
She might have had other kids, too. I'm not sure. Cute. Well, in 2006, Rivati would design something a bit different from her usual mud architecture. She designed a stainless steel gateway for a super thermal power plant in Raigar Chhattisgarh. It is the tallest stainless steel structure in India at 33 meters high. O-M-G. Nijamava. Amazing. Yeah, I was wondering when we would get to this because it seems like such a departure from her typical work. I mean, the structure is of steel and it was designed and fabricated digitally, like completely different than mud, right? But I did read this description on the skyscraper. It's a dialogue between local tribal geometries and an industrial technology. So maybe that's the connection. Mm. Wait, you knew this project? Uh, I've been Googling some stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who can resist? This lady's amazing. Right? In 2018, Rivetti was awarded the World Women in Arts, Architecture and Design Sustainability Award. And three of her projects were nominated for the Aga Khan Award. Oh, achievement on achievement on achievement. The Aga Khan Award for Architecture, A.K.A.A., is an international award started by Aga Khan IV in 1977. It celebrates architectural concepts that successfully address the needs and aspirations of Muslim societies in the fields of contemporary design, social housing, community development and improvement, restoration, reuse and area conservation, landscape design, and improvement of the environment. What else can you ask for? Mm. Yeah. You know who also won this award? Zaha Hadid. That's right. Well, Vasant passed away in September of 2019, and Rivati passed away on July 21st, 2020. She was 65 years old. Oh, no. She was taken too soon. That also just happened. Like two years ago, you were breathing the same air as this lady. Wow. Well, I'm glad that she had time to do so much and be recognized for her great work and that we get to learn from her today. I love it. Thank you so much, Lizzie, for sharing her story. She was 65 and she accomplished so much. And I, I really like this story and I like her philosophies on architecture and community planning. Uh, Very neat. Yeah. Before we leave, we have to tell you who our karyatid is for this week's episode. Jessica, can you remind us what a karyatid is? But of course. All right. So a karyatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek style building. If it was in India, it'd be made out of mud. Each episode, we'll choose a karyatid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. All right. Well. Without further ado, this week's karyatid is... Anna Herringer! So Anna grew up in Laufen, Germany, near the border with Austria. When she was 19, she went to live in Bangladesh to do a year of volunteer work. She worked with the NGO Deepshika and learned about sustainable development work. One of the main things she learned was to use readily available resources and to make the best of it instead of depending on external systems. She went back to Europe to study architecture at the University of Arts and Industrial Design in Linz, Austria. In 2005, her thesis project was actually built. (gasps) Yeah, right? 
The Meti Handmade School was built with the help of the local community and used mud and bamboo, which are traditional materials in that area. Okay, slow your roll, Lizzie. (laughs) She built her thesis project. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That is so freaking cool. Mm -hmm. Right? And she got to do it with traditional materials, input, and community involvement. That is so Mm. (laughs) Reva-thy. And I love it. I just love it. I would have loved to build my thesis project. Uh, it would have been a museum in downtown Miami. Uh, but um, hello. <laughs> also, a recent architecture grad that, you know, doesn't know squat about construction. Uh, I, I can't. I mean, comprehend. I think she partnered with people, you yeah, know, but. but like still. I don't know. I, anyway, I also where did she, where did she go to school in not the U.S.? Austria. They learn Not more the, about construction than we that do. Is true. Not the U.S. That's right. <laughs> Keyword. That's what I said. I remembered. Not the U.S. Uh, but I love yeah. this for Anna. Also, Lizzie, I can see this like reference and relation to Revati so much because of their works with materiality and community. I see it. I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Anna would go to build many other projects, but. Always, she's had a focus on local craftsmen in the community being empowered to use their traditional building materials and methods. Anna said in an interview, rammed earth and bamboo are not materials of the past. No, ma'am, they are not. Preach, Anna. Yes, exactly. Okay, also, side note, recently I read a headline that said that if the industry wanted to combat climate change, we need to build with more mud. So maybe Anna's onto something because it's not only a natural building material, it could literally save our planet. Yeah. I mean, both Anna and Rivati, like, I think that's kind of right what they're pushing. Right. Anna won the Aga Khan Award for architecture in 2007, just like Rivati did with Martin Rausch, She has developed the method of clay storming, which she teaches at several universities, including the Harvard GSD. Just when we thought storming could not get any better (laughs) than barnstorming, now we have clay storming. It is just too much (laughs) excitement for my little heart. Oh, my poor little heart. Okay, because first of all, though, yay for the award, because that makes my little heart happy. But I need to know what clay storming is, because we've fallen into this storming rabbit hole, waterfall, whatever. So we just got to know what clay storming is, Lizzie. I know. When I read that, that's what she, I was like, wait, what? What is this? I must know more. Another type of storm? Yes, exactly. Tell us. (laughs) It's essentially, it's a play on words of brainstorming. So you're essentially, you're brainstorming using clay. So they take the clay and they mold it and sketch like into the clay to sort of create ideas. It's essentially trying to brainstorm in 3D instead of 2d so Mm. i'll include a link with info on clay storming it sounds kind of (laughs) fun ladies we have to practice this y'all it sounds like a quick little model yeah exactly that's a really good idea there's like a method like the website i found there's like steps of like what you do and stuff like that we need that Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay maybe we do a charrette on clay storming on clay storming okay Okay, okay, that could be fun. Storming into clay storming. Yeah. 
I mean, we need a charrette on just all the kinds of stormings, right? On storming. And yeah. Because, okay, so for context, for people that are a little confused of our obsession with storming, um, one, we're not talking about barnstorming because in our episode 35 lady, Carol Johnson, she would go barnstorming, which basically she would fly a plane to pick out trees from different people's yards and, you know, ask for permission and all that stuff. But what you're talking about, Lizzie, sure. is that Anna was brainstorming. Kind of similar. The letters are the same, but they mean different. And she was brainstorming with Clay. I don't know. I agree, Norgidi. It sounds like fun. I've also worked with Clay, like through uh, pottery, like wheel throwing and stuff. So it's a little messy. I'm not going to lie. But I'm down. And actually, Norgidi, you probably don't remember this, but there was a kid in our freshman year, Utaka Show Studio, that built models out of Clay. His film project was the Space Odyssey. He was building like something round, round and like weird shapes. So it was easy for him to do it out of clay. <laughs> Let's visit the Agora. In Greek society, the Agora was the central meeting place of the city where news was shared. So now we're going to share some news from the listeners. We want to congratulate Rima Kadri on her design of the dentist offices of Dentique Smiles. This Ooh. is a great dentist office. Not only do they have a great staff and my teeth feel brand new, like I said at the beginning of the episode, but every single time I go, it's also like a luxurious space. I went there this week wearing, you know, what you wear to the dentist, like a T-shirt and some jeans. And I felt like I was not worthy of the space when I walked <laughs> in because they they have a previous office. That's also pretty luxurious, but I was already acquainted with it. So I felt like we were on first name basis, but <laughs> it just opened up a new location in Tomball, which is like even, even better. So you got to walk in there and be worthy with your nice outfit. <laughs> Ball gowns <laughs> to get your teeth cleaned. Really? I mean, just the <laughs> attention to detail in that space in a dentist office is just amazing. I love it. It just speaks of. The talent of the architect, kudos to Rima Kadri. So if you are in Conroe or Tomball, Texas, you need to check out this dentist's office because it's a gorgeous space and also your teeth will be thankful you did it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I didn't realize how dentist themed our episode was going to be, but you Me know. neither. It just happened. It just happened. <laughs> it's about mud but and congrats teeth. congrats to Rima. <laughs> congrats Rima yes okay before we say goodbye we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music John W our technical producer and most of all thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed learning about Rivati and Anna along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies again thank you Sheeple's podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network and Gable Media is all about building a better world I was just starting to listen to Spaces podcast, their episode Managing Risks for AE. It's really interesting. Mm. I just started, so I'll have to tell you more about it next time. But there's so many shows. There's so many subjects. If you are interested in building a better world, listen and subscribe to any show that speaks to you at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-Media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. 
If you've enjoyed it, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your dentist, your orthodontist, your dental hygienist, the person that is at the receptionist desk when you're getting your teeth cleaned. Give us five stars on iTunes, write us a review, and this will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuiltspodcast at gmail.com, leave a comment on our website, shebuiltspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuiltspodcast and on Twitter at shebuiltspod. Bye. Bye. Adios. Do you guys say <laughs> pecan or pecan? It's pecan. Pecan. Yeah, right. Who the hell says pecan? Some people. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.